Listener production. Hello and welcome to The Briefing. Katrina Blau is here with you. It is Thursday, the 16th of September. We are more than halfway through this month already. And on today's briefing, why you should give an F about farming and why our food supply chains might be more fragile than we all think. I think what the pandemic underlined as well is this need for a kind of local and regional supply chains so that we have that Mm. diverse economic diversity and resilience. There are lots of underlying dependencies I think we need to think about as we get ready for more disruptive events. So this chat is all about the critical role our agriculture sector plays in the economy, the climate and our future. That's coming up in today's briefing. But first up, Antoinette Latouf is here with all the headlines of the day. Hey, Katrina. Well, there is huge defence news today with Australia signing a landmark new deal with the UK and the US. Australia's new generation of submarines is set to be nuclear under that new security alliance. Yeah, so the ABC and Nine newspapers are reporting Australia will use American and British nuclear technology to build that new submarine fleet and they will scrap an existing $90 billion construction deal with France. That technology will be shared under a new partnership called AUKUS, bit of an awkward word, AUKUS, which is being seen as a new bid to counter the growing influence of China in our region. And this news follows several last-minute meetings in Canberra yesterday, with the ABC reporting the federal government has been trying to get in touch with the French government about the deal. This means they're terminating the existing contract with the French, and that could cost taxpayers as much as $400 million. No small change there, Antoinette, and a pretty big decision to make coming up so close to an election too, so they'll want to be able to justify that spending. Meanwhile, we've heard there's another overseas trip on the card for our PM. He'll travel to Washington next week for a meeting of the Quad Alliance. Now, that includes the US, India, Japan and Australia. Scott Morrison's also expected to have his first in-person one-on-one meeting with Mr Biden, uh, the US president, during the trip. Definitely one to watch. Federal Minister Christian Porter could be forced to leave Cabinet and repay donations he received for his legal defence as the PM seeks advice on whether he breached ministerial standards. News Corp is reporting Porter's position as Industry Minister is now under scrutiny after he revealed on Tuesday he'd received money for legal action against the ABC from a blind trust. So the PM said in a statement yesterday he had discussed the issue with Porter and asked the Department of Prime Minister and Cabinet to investigate. And never one to hold back, Porter's former colleague and Prime Minister Malcolm Turnbull told the ABC it's wrong for Porter to accept the anonymous donations for his legal costs. This is red hot and it shouldn't be accepted for a minute. I mean, imagine somebody turns up to the politician's office wearing a mask, a hood over their head and presents a bag of cash and says, there it is. That, that's, that, that's the equivalent of this. It is crazy. So you might remember that Porter sued the ABC for defamation in March over an online news article. The Victorian police have issued a strict warning to anyone planning to attend an anti-lockdown protest that's set to take place in Melbourne CBD this weekend. You cannot come in. 
anyone who's planning to come in. It is an illegal gathering and we'll be doing everything we can to prevent that gathering. This is the biggest game in town for us to stop this occurring. That's Chief Commissioner Shane Patton speaking there yesterday. So police will shut down Melbourne's public transport network for six hours on Saturday. They'll also mobilise 2,000 officers to block the streets in an effort to uh, stifle that protest. Meanwhile, the 9pm curfew for hotspot LGAs in Sydney has been wound back. But New South Wales Premier Gladys Berejiklian says other restrictions will stay in place. We can't move on anything else just now. We need everybody to hold the line. Please make sure that if you do live in those local government areas of concern that you'll stick to every other rule that's in place. Look, I know I had a whinge about this yesterday, Katrina, and here I am for round two. Mm -hmm. It doesn't make sense that some of these LGAs still have these restrictions. So, for example, Parramatta LGA, which is quite a large one in Western Sydney, now has less cases but higher vaccination rates than the City of Sydney Mm. LGA, which has far lower vaccination rates and has exceeded the number of COVID restrictions. So this whole tale of two cities and Sydney Mm. feeling divided, whether or not you live in a trendy inner city or beachside suburbs, as opposed to something out in the Western suburbs, is seriously playing out. And the numbers and the math no longer back these policies. This also comes after local mayors and MPs called for restrictions to be eased as case numbers showed signs of stabilising and the state reached 80% first dose vaccine coverage. Britain's High Court will intervene to formally contact Prince Andrew about allegations of sexual assault filed in the US after his lawyer said he hadn't been properly served notice of that case. Virginia Dufresne is suing the prince in a civil lawsuit in the US, alleging she was forced to have sex with Andrew when she was just 17 years old. Yes, yeah, so Andrew has denied the accusations and his legal team had previously told a pre-trial hearing in New York he hadn't been properly served those documents relating to the lawsuit. Sounds like a bit of a stalling tactic. Dufresne's legal team was able to request help from the UK High Court under a special international agreement and the court has overnight confirmed it will contact the Prince. And a big discussion on how we can better tackle sex education in schools will get underway today. That's led by consent education activist Chanel Contos at a forum with federal politicians, educational officials and sex discrimination campaigners. Yeah, what a win for this um, former Sydney schoolgirl. So Contos first got on people's radars earlier this year after her social media activism sparked a whole new debate about how consent is taught in schools. And young people who've experienced sexual assault will be given a voice at the forum, which is going to thrash out making changes to the curriculum. Yeah, absolutely love this and I love how she was able to get um, into young people's feeds and really read that mood of the moment. Um, My daughter's 13 and she was talking about this a lot at home. And if you are keen on getting a bit more background on this story leading into that forum, we did a briefing episode with Chanel back in early March. That is a really great chat. You just go back into the listener app and all of those episodes are there and you can easily look that one up. Katrina, what I think's really interesting here is, you know, while it might shock some parents or people who are a little bit older or, you know, pre-internet age is 
by the age of 10, most young Australians have already watched pornography. And something the Scandinavians are doing, and they're always so much more progressive than we are, is they're actually teaching and showing pornography in schools. Like they're teaching about how it is, you know, dramatised and how Mm. it's not necessarily how sexual interactions... deconstructing it. Yeah, Yeah. and so let's just like, let's not deny that people and young people have access to this. Instead, let's weave this in, of course, responsibly into sexual education and dispel some of those myths and dispel some of those expectations. So anyway, I'd be interested to see if that um, factors into the discussion and also factors into sex education moving forward. All right, Antoinette, well, thank you so much for joining us for the headlines. Up next, why you should give an F about farming. On today's briefing, why Australia's food supply mightn't be as secure as we think and why we should all care about that. If anyone had said to you a couple of years ago, you would witness panic buying in your lifetime, those fights in the aisles that we saw during the pandemic, you probably would have laughed at them. But as we all know, after 18 months of COVID, it has really highlighted just how we are about a day of crazy buying away from bare shelves and minimal staple foods at the supermarket. Yeah, it's definitely something I never thought I would see in my (laughs) lifetime. And all of this comes at a time when farming just isn't the enticing occupation it once was. The latest Department of Agriculture figures show that since 1978, there's been a steady decline in both broadacre farms. Now, they're the ones for us city slickers who don't know what they are. They grow our crops. And also there's been a decline in dairy farms. That's got today's guest, journalist Gabrielle Chan, thinking, especially when she herself moved originally to the Canberra Press Gallery and then to a sheep and wheat farm to the west of Canberra. She reckons that our modern food systems are actually quite vulnerable and we don't know enough about them. Yeah, she also says that farmers are at the front line of the biggest global issues of our time, including climate change and trade wars. She also says if you eat food or wear clothes, so that's pretty much all of us, the decisions you make influence farming right now. Gabrielle has just written a book. It's called Why You Should Give an F About Farming. And she joins us now. (laughs) Gabrielle, thanks for joining us. So why should people care about farming? Well, farmers manage up to 60% of Australia as a landmass. That's probably one of the biggest reasons. So the way we manage that land is going to have a material impact on the way that uh, Australia meets its climate emissions targets. The other reason, of course, is because we eat. As we talk about that land management goal, we don't price that into our the cost of our food. So the cost of your food, your loaf of bread on the shelf at the supermarket doesn't include what it costs to look after land. Mm. The other thing that's happening is this real increasing demand for things called ecosystem services and they are environmental services that big global companies, governments pay for in order to manage land. And those two things, I think, are crashing into each other. And you didn't grow up 
in a regional community or on a farm that came later in life. So I just wondered what your perceptions were of that rural life and farming before you became a part of it. Oh, well, it was like a movie. You know, the first thing my dad said to me was uh, when I told him that I'd met a farmer was, um, have you not seen Wake in Fright? <laughs> so there was this real kind of cultural separation between the way I grew up as the daughter of a Singaporean Chinese migrant and an Anglo mum in the Sydney suburbs. We had no connection to rural life or to anyone on the land. So it was like a foreign country to me. I had no understanding of the culture and it is quite a different culture. So it was a real eye-opener and it took me a long time to settle, you know, It took me, I'd say, a good 10 years to adjust because I kept looking east. I kept thinking I must be missing something. And in story terms, like talk about slow learner, it took me that 10 years to work out, holy shit, this is a really interesting place to be in terms of the way Australia is changing. And it's a really interesting story to tell. And because my kids grew up here and I made my life here, it became a really important story to tell. That's so interesting how that story was unfolding right under your nose. And it's only now that you've written a book about it. What, what did prompt you to eventually see that it was really juicy material that was worthy of a book? I stayed in the press gallery when my kids were little and left before they went to school. So I had that time and then I had a chunk of time when they were in primary school, like really getting to know the town I was living in, the people that I was living amongst. And that's when I connected into the school PNCs, the, you know, I was weirdly the treasurer of the pony club, those sorts of things (laughs) that really connect you into the fabric of the town and then I went back to the press gallery so it was like these two chunks of time that were separated by this really close understanding of how the place worked and so it was when I went back into the press gallery that the debates that we were having seemed quite separate from the debates that I knew were happening now on the main street so we were having these separate debates about what to do with agriculture and drought on the one hand and then another debate in a totally separate silo about what to do about climate change as if farming was nested in the environment and totally dependent on natural resources and that's really what sparked my interest for this book. You touched on having children in a regional area and you don't have to go back very far, maybe a hundred years, and even kids growing up in urban areas probably knew a little bit more about where their food came from, either through having market gardens or knowing people that had some form of livestock. That's not necessarily the case now. We do have a really strong city-rural divide. So what have you learnt about, I guess, the importance of understanding that supply chain and where is it at the moment? Do you think enough Aussies know where their food comes from? I don't. And I only say that because I was one of them. And even up (laughs) until quite recently, I, I really resonate with that idea that food comes from a supermarket and 
basically life is busy and you can't think beyond that. And I'll tell you a story that is really makes me look like an idiot. At the beginning of the pandemic, everyone was baking bread and I thought, you know, I can do this stuff like I'll bake bread. Couldn't get any flour in the local supermarket. Ordered some as I was running out because I was such a crappy baker and wasting it all from our local chemist, which has a bit of a kind of health food section. This sack of flour turns up covered in German. It had come from Germany. Like Australia is one of, I think, the fourth largest wheat growing country in the world. I live on a freaking wheat farm, right? (laughs) That's how we make money. So I've got a silo full of wheat which I sometimes feed to the chooks and but mostly is sold as a commodity in bulk to the local grain handler and it hadn't entered my mind to get a mill, just get a home mill to use our beautiful flour. <laughs> and I think it's that separation of the convenience of supermarkets. That's the way I've always got food, you know, from the time I was a kid. The supermarket is the big thing. So it just underlined for me, I think, that we need to have a better understanding about this stuff. But I think what the pandemic underlined as well is this need for a kind of local and regional supply chains so that we have Mm. that diverse economic diversity and resilience. There are lots of underlying dependencies I think we need to think about as we get ready for more disruptive events. And finally, Gabrielle, I wanted to ask you about the future of farming. Now, I grew up in a farming area and traditionally you'd have kids that perhaps would go to the city for school or university, but they'd come back to the family farm and they'd take it over. That's not happening as much. We're seeing big conglomerates and supermarket chains get involved in the farming process. But at the same time, enrolments in ag courses have gone up during COVID. So I wondered what you thought about the future of farming in Australia and where will it belong and what will it look like? There's a lot of energy in the sector right now. I think that's a couple of things. There's a lot of ag tech that's coming into the sector that maybe is enlivening younger generations as to what's possible. The mitigating factors are the land price. There's a currently a rural land price boom. It's massive. You know, the Rural Bank report for 2020 showed a 25% increase in land prices in Tasmania, 20% in Western Australia, 13% average across the nation. So these prices are booming and that makes the succession issue in farming that is always an issue, makes it even harder because siblings who stay on the farm have to pay out the other siblings and so that makes that harder to do the more expensive the land is. So the thing that I was really fascinated by is the kind of corporate interest in farming right now and we've had corporates flow in and out of farming in white Australian history but I think the thing that's really making them bullish is the population projections to 2050 according to the UN are about 9.7 to 10 billion. So there's that food demand happening. And the other thing is that thing I mentioned earlier about the capacity to make money out of environmental services getting paid for soil carbons. I've talked to real estate agents who are saying, you know, people are getting really excited about the idea that maybe some of your income will come from food production, probably still the majority, but some of it 
will be offset by environmental service incomes and that could change the look of farming dramatically. That was Gabrielle Chan, the author of Why You Should Give an F About Farming. Her new book is out now. Really touched a nerve for me. I grew up in a rural town. My parents live on a farm and I think it's one of the biggest divides, the city-country divide. And it's not actually necessarily real in terms of the people, but it's this perception that city folk often don't understand or interact with Mm. a lot of regional Australians and vice versa. We have those latte sipping kind of ideals Mm. we think of people we don't really know anything about. What do you think, Katrina? I couldn't agree more and even, you know, those so-called farmers markets that come to the city, it's a very sort of gentrified (laughs) um, Mm. version of of rural life. So um, this was a fascinating chat, particularly when she spoke about needing flour and having a silo full of wheat. <laughs> it just goes to show the disconnect that we definitely need to address. On tomorrow's briefing, one you definitely won't want to miss if you have a pet. How to tackle separation anxiety. We've all been at home so much more during this pandemic and our pets are really going to suffer soon. Listener.